Hi. Wow, that was loud. Welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today it's Friday, November 27th, 2020. Thank you so much for tuning in. Going to turn the notification off my phone because, uh, yeah, that's what we'll do here. Thanks so much for tuning in and uh, getting everything together here. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco. And. San Francisco is on unceded ancestral, the homeland of the Ramaytush Ohlone peoples, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. And we have a page up at the weeklyrev.org land acknowledgments tab that provides a lot of links, including the Civil Ed Taylor Land Trust, which folks can contribute to, as well as Indigenous Mutual Aid, a uh, link to Radio Free Alcatraz, which 
was a radio program that John Trudell put on and just really riveting. And there's also a map which will show you which indigenous lands you're on and a thread of native news outlets and a few more links as well. So it's every day living in this country and it's just another every day. It's not just on a specific genocidal holiday that I think a lot of folks have been brainwashed into quote-unquote celebrating. Um, just taking recognition of that and what our role is in this. And I think about my grandparents who came over here from Eastern Europe, escaping fascism and then coming to this land which was stolen. And how much does, uh, and just this idea of people either being forced to assimilate or encouraged to and what that means and the repercussions of that and holding that, holding that truth and supporting land back. <sighs> so taking some time and it's again, it's not the, it's not like, oh, this is only the only time of year to think about it. It should be happening every day. So wanting to put that out there in the universe. It's, I know it's already out there, but wanting to add my voice to that. And I oftentimes with this program, I prefer to have other people's voices on. I realize this is a, it's a privilege uh, to have this platform, to have two hours a week to share whatever content I'd like. And it's always beneficial when I have other people's voices on. So acknowledging that as well. Well, I don't have any guests booked for this week. I do have some news articles we'll be sharing and playing some video footage as well. So it'll be my voice. However, I'll be sharing um, words that were written by other folks as well. Start off with some music, as we usually do, because music's pretty phenomenal. I don't know why I'm feeling so mellow right now. Just, uh, just a lot going on. First song we played was Chalk Tablet Towers by Gorillaz featuring St. Vincent, and then Wow, by Yam House. I have a whole playlist here of songs that I've been meaning to play for a while. Just songs I've heard on the radio and uh, or new songs, or songs that are new to me, I should say, that I wanted to share. And it's a nice balance with uh, some of these articles that are difficult to, to read and it's also extremely important just to share what's going on. So I do have a few news articles here, not in any particular order, but know why I feel so mellow. It's really weird. I'm totally questioning it. Um, we'll see if I get worked up when I read these articles. did want to share some news out of Germany that Amazon workers in Germany are on strike on quote-unquote Black Friday, which is what today is known as, and it's such a fucking stupid-ass holiday. I can't even... <sighs> I, capitalism is a death cult. I wanted to uh, uh, t tweet that yesterday. I think for the they still did the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which is pretty much literally showing the, the cracks in capitalism as some of the buildings were. It was not my choice to watch it, I'll just say. And um, just, I hadn't really watched it in the past, and it's just the idea that it ends with uh, Santa Claus. It's just, it's so apparent that it's about people spending money, and it's just so clear that's what it's about, and I feel like it's always been disgusting, and then even more so with each year as more and more people are targeted for incarceration, more and more people are being evicted and without housing, more and more people without health care, 
about worker protections, and then now with this pandemic, it's obscene. And the idea that uh, it's just so clear to me. I think that's something else. Oh, I haven't ranted in a while, so I might as well rant here. The idea of I when I read things online, I I see people's arguments, and so often people who have some of the most disgusting arguments are so confident. And that's what really boggles my mind. How can you be so confident and still so wrong all the time? Like, I'll be the first to admit that I'm still learning. I'm still unlearning. There's so much of growing up in this country that has to be questioned and behaviors that we end up uh, exhibiting that we have unfortunately learned from the oppressors. We just end up repeating in our, on ourselves and on communities. There's so much harm, and there's so much that's unclear and so much that's... Uh, Ideally, we would have time to step away from and say and just question it and have moments to process and hold ourselves accountable, hold other people accountable, create a world where um, there's there is actual transformative justice. So we prevent the negative things from happening again. We give people what they need in order to prevent the harm from happening. And that, I mean, I feel like that's the, the ideal thing to do ensure people have their basic needs met. And there are still folks, especially in the city, just the, the divide of folks who are so cruel in their opinions and thoughts towards unhoused people, towards the poor. It's so fucking obscene and disgusting. And th they're so confident about it, too. They're so sure they're right. And this idea of just punishing people who are having a rough time as if that's supposed to somehow help, I don't know what that helps at all. Oh, well, I think I've bummed myself out now for my mood. But it's just, uh, and again, I'm only talking, like, I feel like I could always be doing more, certainly. This is just one small piece of it. And actions are speak far louder than words, certainly. And at the same time, I do feel like vocalizing it. I'm inspired when other folks speak the truth, and it makes me feel less alone. And I've mentioned it maybe once before on this program. I was really inspired by Ray Taliaferro, who was a radio broadcaster in in San Francisco. And a couple, I remember listening to him maybe in the late 90s, and this was before W was elected. And he was warning us about that and just talking about the Ugh. The disgusting war profiteering of uh, the GOP. And then the Democrats also have their disgusting war profiteering, too. I don't want to leave them out of this. And it was, I think, hearing Raytalia Farrow's voice and just having an understanding of someone speaking the truth and never, I never got a chance to meet him or talk to him, but his voice going out there made a huge difference in my life. I grew up pretty shy and um, afraid to speak, afraid to voice my opinion. And, and uh, to an extent, I am still in some areas, certainly. However, when I feel able to, it's really important. I feel like I look, look at the world and it's so, things are so backwards, so upside down. I was watching footage of from L.A. of cops 
ramming, they were evicting people and children from a house in LA a couple days ago. And just that act alone, like there's, it's indefensible. I don't, the fact that someone can knowingly do that to cause harm to, I, I just, it makes no sense to me. And I know it's not supposed to make sense. I know it's because police protect property and not people. I get that. And I still don't understand how someone can sleep at night knowing that they've caused so much harm, directly so much harm to people and to children. And it shouldn't matter, honestly. Causing harm to adults is not, not okay either. It's just so heartbreaking. <sighs> so wanting to, to call that out, and I don't think any cops listen to this show. However, if you do, quit your job. Quit your job and tell your coworkers to quit their jobs too. And again, it goes back to capitalism. If there, if a lot of folks are looking for work, and one of the, and one job that's available is uh, causing harm to someone, I mean that's just uh, indictment of this whole system too. That our tax dollars, my own tax dollars, are being spent on police instead of going to city college or going to build up public transit or ensure folks have housing, health care, all that stuff. It's obscene. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's where we're at. I did want to get back to that first story I wanted to share because uh, uh, action equals life. Amazon workers in Germany to go on strike on Black Friday, which is today. This is from Reuters much a mainstream <laughs> news source here. This was written by the Reuters staff. came out on November 25th. In Frankfurt, trade union Verdi called on workers at seven German Amazon warehouses to go on a three-day strike that will coincide with Black Friday discount shopping sales on November 27th. They're playing a video here, and there's some people who are dressed up like turkeys. I don't know what that's about. I'm not going to listen to it. Scheduled to begin this with Wednesday's night shift, Verdi is demanding better pay and working conditions. Verdi has been organizing strikes at Amazon in Germany the company's biggest market after the United States since 2013, most recently last month during its quote-unquote Prime Day promotional event. An Amazon spokesman said at the time that the company off... Oh, fuck you. This was... I knew this was going to happen before. I started reading this paragraph. The Amazon PR people are going to be fucking lying, just like the cops lie. And the thing about having this own show, my own show here, is that uh, I don't have to read the propaganda from big corporations from corrupt law enforcement, from politicians who lie. Fuck them. Not going to read your nonsense. Next paragraph. The U.S. retail giant has seen sales soar globally as restrictions to prevent the spread of the coronavirus sent consumers online, making it difficult for some brick-and-mortar shops to compete. Verdi argues this has strengthened the case for higher wages, adding workers were not sufficiently protected against the spread of coronavirus. Last week, Amazon to government pressure in France to postpone its local Black Friday event by a week to help local shopkeepers struggling with a nationwide lockdown. And also just going to note that the the phrasing of uh, lockdown is not not to be used in this situation as people who are incarcerated um, actually have to live with lockdown. All right, so shelter in place is a phrase to use. Um, something else, another news story. And again, just clicking on links here. Uh, these are links that I've been checking out throughout the week. This is from pinknews.co.uk. 
Trans people can now self-identify their gender with a few clicks as India launches revolutionary online portal. See, there's some good news on this program, too. Despite my demeanor and feeling hopeless a lot of the time, there are positive things that are happening. So this is good. This is written by uh, Patrick Kelleher, and this came out on November 25th. Trans people in India can now apply to have their gender identity legally recognized online through a new government portal. The portal, launched on Wednesday, November 25th, by the Ministry of Social Justice and Empowerment, MSJE, will allow trans people to have their gender identity certified by the district magistrate without visiting government offices. Great news. The ministry said the new portal would help protect the privacy of trans people by allowing them to self-declare their gender identity online, the Times of India reports. Trans people who want to use the system will be asked to upload an affidavit declaring their quote-unquote self-perceived gender identity. So it's their gender identity. They don't have to be self-perceived. It's just their gender identity. But okay, this is good. I don't want to critique it too much. They will then be sent on an identity certificate that confirms their correct gender identity, and they will receive an updated identity card within 30 days. The ministry also said trans people would be able to register grievances through the online portal and will eventually link them to various government facilities and schemes they can access online. The Ministry of Social Justice and Empowerment also said that the online portal would help them build a database of trans people in India, a move that may come as a concern to the country's trans community. Trans people who have previously applied to the government to have their gender identity legally recognized will not need to apply through the online portal. Shelters are also being opened in India to accommodate trans people kicked out by their families. The ministry has also announced it is setting up shelters for trans people who have been forced out of their homes in India, with the first such home opened in Vadodara, Vadodara in Gujarat on Wednesday, November 25th. By March 31st, 2021, it is expected that shelters will have been opened in Delhi, Mumbai, Chennai, Patna, uh, my apologies if I mispronounce these, um, Kolkata, Jaipur, Raipur, Bhubaneswar, and Manipur. The news comes just one year after India passed a trans rights bill that was branded dehumanizing by trans people in the country. The Transgender Persons Protection of Rights Act was passed despite significant opposition from the trans community in India, with many criticizing sections that delivered lesser sentences for people convicted of crimes against trans people. The bill also failed to offer any protections for trans people in public spaces or in the workplace, despite a lengthy campaign from activists. Hmm. All right. Well, um, the positive side is folks being able to apply online. That's very good. Let's get to one more s news story, and then I'll play some music. I'm going through these far quick, more quickly than I had planned, but that's quite all right. <sighs> Let me take a, a breather here. And... Oh, also just going to read the headline here uh, that uh, in San Francisco, the DA, Chase Abudin, who was a guest on the show maybe last year, it's hard to keep track of time, um, has filed homicide charges against SFPD officer Chris Sam Samoyo, Sam excuse me, Samo Samayoa, who murdered uh, Kita O'Neill in 2017. This is the first homicide charge in San Francisco history of an active SFPD officer. So, yeah. <sighs> All right. And uh, 
a lot. Going to uh, play some more music here and get some more news articles. So please uh, stay tuned.
And welcome back. That was uh, Sylvan Essa with Rooftop Dancing. Before that, Graveyard Club with Valens. Next up, going to play a piece from Democracy Now! This came out in 2016, November 25th, 2016, to be specific. Uh, historian Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz on Thanksgiving. It has never been about honoring Native Americans. As much of the United States prepares to mark Thanksgiving this weekend, many Native Americans will gather in Plymouth to commemorate the 47th National Day of Mourning. This year is dedicated to water protectors at Standing Rock and to the struggle for recognition of Indigenous Peoples Day. To discuss this and more, we're joined in San Francisco by Indigenous historian and activist Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She's the author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, 
and co-author of All the Real Indians Died Off and 20 Other Myths About Native Americans. Uh, welcome back uh, to Democracy Now!, uh, Roxanne. Uh, could you tell us, as the nation prepares to observe uh, Thanksgiving, a national holiday ostensibly meant to honor Native people, uh, what are your thoughts? Thank you for having me on the show. Um, actually, it's never been about honoring Native Americans. It's been about the origin story of the United States, the beginning of genocide, dispossession, and constant warfare from that time, actually from 1607 in Jamestown, uh, until the present. Uh, it's a colonial system that was set up. There's a sort of annual um, uh, calendar uh, for this origin story, beginning with Columbus, October 12th. Why celebrate Columbus? It was the onset of colonialism, the slave trade, and dispossession of the native people of the Americas. So that is celebrated with a federal holiday. Uh, that's followed then by Thanksgiving, which is uh, a, a uh, completely made up story to say the native people welcomed uh, these people who were going to devastate their civilization, uh, which is simply a lie. Uh, and then you go to uh, President's Days, the Founding Fathers in February, and celebrate uh, these slave owners, uh, Indian killers, George Washington headed the Virginia militia uh, for the very purpose of killing uh, Native people on the periphery of uh, the colony. Uh, before, you know, when it was still a Virginia colony. And then we have uh, the big day, the fireworks, July 4th, uh, Independence, which is probably the most tragic event in world history because it gave us, it gave the world uh, a genocidal regime under the guise of democracy. And um, that's really the, I'm a historian, so that's the historical context that I think we have to uh, see Thanksgiving in, that it is, it is a part of that mythology that attempts to cover up uh, the real history of the United States. Uh, it, it actually, when it was introduced as a holiday uh, by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, there was no mention of pilgrims and uh, Native people or food or pumpkins or anything like that. It was simply a day uh, for families to be together and mourn their dead and be grateful uh, for the living. And I think that's an appropriate holiday uh, that, that uh, how people should enjoy it. So they should take uh, Native Americans and Puritans out of the picture for it to be a legitimate holiday of uh, feast and, and sharing with family and friends. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, the people at Plymouth, uh, I send greetings to them. Uh, they have for many years, I think it's almost 40 years now, that, uh, stood up and, and uh, testify to uh, the lie of Plymouth Rock, the Mayflower, the Pilgrim. Uh, and um, this is very hard for people to give up. This is the national nationalism. It's actually Americanism uh, is um, white supremacy and uh, represents 
negative things. There's almost no way to uh, reconcile it. It simply has to be deconstructed and faced up to, and otherwise there will be no social change that's meaningful for anyone. Uh, Roxanne uh, Dunbar-Ortiz, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us, uh, Indigenous historian and activist. That does it for today's show. Tune in tomorrow for our Standing Rock special. All right. So again, this was an interview from Democracy Now! on November 23rd, 2016. If you'd like to uh, see the interview online. That was again, democracynow.org. And following that up, there's a... A I'm gonna take a deep breath. This is like a research assignment, not like this is a research assignment that was um, put together by the collective, uh, the, excuse me, the Catalyst Project, um, anti-racism for collective liberation. So you can find more information at collectiveliberation.org, and this is homework questions about home. And this worksheet was inspired by a handout. So I'll read it, and then I'll post it on our website, weeklyrev.org. This worksheet was inspired by a handout created by Kulsiya Mat Rabina Thomas from the Liaxon of the Coast Salish Nation. It has been developed with input from Corina Gould from the Chochenyo Ohlone from the Confederated Villages of Lishan, Janella LaRose, Shoshone Benak, Nick Tilson, Oglala Lakota, uh, Annie Morgan Banks, and Chanel Gallant. The goal of this exercise is for non-Native people to learn and reflect on the history and current struggles of Indigenous people and to begin thinking about our role in colonization and decolonization. It is about changing the way we think about and relate to the land that we call home and to the people whose home this land is. And researching the questions below, you can think about lands you spent some part of your childhood in, family lands, or where you presently live. While researching, be wary of your sources, cross-reference, look deeper, think if you know anyone you could ask whose knowledge you trust, reach out to people in your community who might know more. Sometimes indigenous nations have a website and or an office and can be contacted directly. And I'll mention again, uh, the Ramaytush uh, peoples in San Francisco, there's a page, uh, ramaytush.com, and then also for the East Bay here in California, there's the Segorate Land Trust, uh, you can also find that by typing in Shumi Land Tax, and that's S-H-U-U-M-I Land Tax. You can find information there as well. And also we provide links on weeklyrev.org on the uh, land acknowledgement page as well. <sighs> okay. So sometimes indigenous nations have a website and or an office and can be contacted directly. If you are talking with indigenous people, ask for consent beforehand, offer a gift of thanks, and think through ways you can reciprocate uh, the time, energy, and emotional labor that you are asking from people to speak about their own history of colonization and genocide. We encourage you to build strong, reciprocal relationships with indigenous people in your area, and depending on the context, asking these questions may or may not be a good way to start or deepen a relationship. This is about unlearning and relearning, and also about the conversations we spark when we ask these questions. And they have a resource, uh, Reclaiming Native Truth, I'm going to click on that right now, see if I can share the link. So if you go to rnt.firstnations.org, uh, that will bring you to that uh, web page. Uh, an extensive research project led by Native people, dispelling myths and misconceptions, and check out, they have a map as a starter as well, which is the Native Land uh, 
map. After you do the research, please take time to draw the place that you researched. Include indigenous nations, territories, indigenous place names, sacred sites where indigenous people are currently organizing, and the streams, creeks, or rivers in your watershed. Take the time to let your hands understand what can be hard for our heads to grasp. One, who is and are the indigenous nations that have always lived in the place you call home? Two, what did historical colonization look like on that land? Three, what does current colonization look like on that land? What has been the impact to indigenous people, the land and ecosystem? Four, have there been any treaties relating to that land? Under what conditions were the treaties signed according to the signatory indigenous nations? How are these treaties being broken? Where would you find out what treaty responsibilities cover the lands that you live on if those lands are under treaty? Were there any Indian boarding schools, forced residential schools, sometimes called industrial schools, or missions here? When did they close? When and how were indigenous people killed, forcibly relocated, or moved? How is this still happening there? For example, displacement through land theft, high rates of incarceration, police violence, missing or murdered ind indigenous women, suicide, or other ways. Seven, in your area, do indigenous people try to pass as white and or assimilate into another culture in order to survive? Have they in the past? Eight, what did you, do you learn about indigenous peoples in school? Nine, are you told stories in your family about indigenous people ancestors? If so, are they true and what purpose do they serve? 10, what, local, what are local indigenous people in your community or region organizing around or on? 11, do indigenous people in your area have stewardship ownership free and full access to their land and water? 12. What watershed is connected to the place that you call home? 13. Do indigenous people in your area have access to stable, well-paying employment? 14. Do you or people you organize with have relationships with indigenous communities or organizers? Are you connecting your work with their work? 15. What are indigenous organizers calling for, their visions or demands? What would achieving those visions mean for the place you call home? How can you work towards supporting those visions or demands? Share your research with other people in your life. According to the research done with Reclaiming Native Truth, 40% of Americans believe that indigenous people no longer exist in the United States. It's stunning. Ugh, stunning is not the right. It's just, wow. So again, uh, this was provided by the Catalyst Project, and you can find more information at collectiveliberation.org, which is anti-racism for collective liberation, and we'll also be sharing a link on our website. Whew. I'm going to take a break here and we'll be back with some more news in a bit. Uh, this is a uh, song Television, the Drug of the Nation. Liner notes, commercial break. The government has now banned the carrying of spears. Stop about every thousand miles ain't asking too much, is it? You might wish to uh, stay on and listen. It was a place where everything was legal. I met this woman. So if you're looking for emotional satisfaction, my advice to you is seek professional help. Thank you for joining us live on the air. My pleasure. One Nation under God has turned into one nation under the influence of one drug. Television. 
the drug of a nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of a nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation TV. Its satellite links are United States of Unconsciousness. Apathetic, therapeutic, and extremely addictive. The methadone metronome, pumping out 150 channels 24 hours a day. You can flip through all of them, and still there's nothing worth watching. TV is a reason why less than 10% of our nation reads books daily. Why most people think Central America means Kansas. Socialism means un-American, and apartheid is a new headache remedy. Absorbed in this world, it's so hard to find us. It shapes our minds the most. Maybe the mother of our nation should remind us that we're sitting too close to the television. The drug of a nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of the nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation. TV is a stomping ground for political candidates. Where bears in the woods are chased by Grecian forms at bald eagles. TV is mechanized politics, remote control over the masses, co-sponsored by environmentally safe gases. Watch for the PBS special. It's a perpetuation of the two-party system, where image takes precedence over wisdom, where sound by politics are served to the fast food culture. Where straight teeth in your mouth are more important than the words that come out of it. Race baiting is the way to get selected. Willie Horton or will he not get elected on television? The drug of a nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of a nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation. or the director does it imitate us or do we imitate it because a child watches 1500 murders before he's 12 years old and then we wonder why we created a jason generation that learns to laugh rather than abhor the whore tv is a place where armchair generals and quarterbacks can experience firsthand the excitement of video warfare as the theme song is sung in the background. Sugar-sweet sitcoms that leave us with a bad actor taste, while pop stars metamorphosize into soda pop stars. You saw the video, you heard the soundtrack. Well, now go buy the soft drink. Well, the only cola that I support would be a Union COLA cost of living allowance on television. The drug of the nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of the nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation. Virtually spotless, fresh, frozen, 
light yet filling, and military intelligence have become standard. TV is a place where phrases are redefined, like recessions and necessary downturns, crude oil on a beach to moose, civilian death to collateral damages, and being killed by your own army is now called friendly fire. has become the pursuit of trivia, where toothpaste and cars have become sex objects, where imagination is sucked out of children by a cathode ray nipple. TV is the only wet nurse that would create a cripple. Television, the drug of the nation, breeding ignorance, feeding radiation on television, the drug of the nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television the drug of the nation breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television the drug of the nation breeding ignorance and feeding radiation Television, the drug of the nation, and that was whoop. <laughs> um, that was by the disposable heroes of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Ugh. Hypocrisy. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> all right. I'm gonna share some more news with you all. Together here. Okay, so this comes from uh, Teen Vogue, and this came out on November twenty fifth, twenty twenty. Facial recognition technology is being used on more campuses during COVID nineteen. Um, some pause music here. Okay, let's get this. Um. <clears throat> Miseducation is a column that chronicles what it's like to be a student in the modern United States. This is written by Mary Retta, and again, uh, teenvogue.com. On September 22nd, a group of nine students at the University of Miami received a mysterious email from an administrator. Dr. Ryan Holmes is inviting you to a scheduled Zoom meeting to discuss the incident that happened on September 4th, 2020 at the Witten University Center, read the email obtained by Teen Vogue. There was a Zoom meeting link, but no further explanation. The incident the email referred to, which all nine email recipients had attended, was a die-in to protest conditions for cafeteria workers on campus. In the Zoom meeting, the students say Holmes gave a long speech about how they should have properly registered their protest. When they asked repeatedly how they had been identified, they report that the dean didn't have much to say. Everyone was kind of wondering how we were identified at being at the protest, uh, Marge Fernandez, a graduate student at the University of Miami, tells Teen Vogue. At one point, someone just outright asked, was it some sort of super secret surveillance technology? 
But Dean just kind of laughed and then said something about how it's no different than if the school were to use facial recognition software to find a student's laptop that goes missing from the library. In late October, another group of University of Miami students got in trouble for removing banners from campus that had been placed by the university's College Republicans Club. University of Miami President Julio Frank emailed the student body with a message obtained by Teen Vogue that a pro-Trump banner approved to be displayed on campus ugh, had been vandalized, good, I'm glad it was vandalized, and that those found responsible will be held accountable. Soon after, several students who removed the Trump signs say they were called in by the police. Although they did not ask how they were identified as the individuals behind the action, the students who spoke with Teen Vogue say many suspect facial recognition technology was involved. One student who removed a Trump sign tells Teen Vogue they did so to ensure marginalized students felt safe on campus. To me, that sign was a disgusting display of a hateful belief system that has somehow become socially acceptable with the rise of Trump, says the student who prefers to remain anonymous. I was contacted by the police a couple days after. The student says they felt as if the police were trying to intimidate them and the matter was being treated as a criminal investigation. Since they used the word criminal, a lawyer informed me that it was within my Fifth Amendment rights to not show up and testify against myself, the student explains. The lawyer reached out and told the police she is, was representing me, and I haven't heard from them since. Teen Vogue has reached out to the University of Miami Police Department multiple times for comment. In a statement emailed to Teen Vogue, the University of Miami denies any use of facial recognition technology on campus. The university does not employ facial recognition technology in its security me measures, the statement reads. The university was criticized wrongly for, alleging, for allegedly using facial recognition technology to identify students who attended a September protest. However, the resume of David Rivero, the chief of police with the University of Miami Depart Police Department, touts the university's usage of a camera system that employs facial recognition. One of the largest security projects adding during, added during Chief Rivero's t tenure was the creation of the new university-wide camera system, reads Rivero's resume obtained by Teen Vogue. And I'm going to take a note that make a note that folks can listen to last week's episode. Uh, I spoke with uh, Dylan Rodriguez about getting cops off campuses, and uh, please do check that out, weeklyrev.org, for the November 20th episode. Please do uh, check that out, because that totally loops into this. The system now includes 1,338 cameras, recording 24 hours a day and featuring video analytics which is the use of sophisticated al algorithms applied to a video stream to detect predefined situations and parameters such as motion detection, facial recognition, object detection, and much more. And just what a fucking waste of money and technology. When, gr when students are in debt, when teachers barely make enough to support themselves, what a fucking waste. Excuse me, let me continue. In an October 4th interview with Distraction, a student magazine at the university, Rivero admitted to using facial recognition to catch, quote-unquote, a few bad guys on campus. You're the bad guy. He's the bad guy. I'm assuming he uses he, him pronouns. This person is a bad guy. According to the university's statement, though, Rivero denies use of facial recognition technology during the September protests on campus. Teen Vogue has reached out for clarity surrounding the matter, but has not received a response. While the University of Miami denies using facial recognition in September, the COVID-19 pandemic has helped make surveillance technology commonplace on other college and K-12 campuses. Many schools argue that using this technology is a safe, no-contact way to keep track of students 
or entering dorms or to check whether students have fever. No great stretch from long-standing practices like using electronic key cards to swipe into dorms or billable meals at the cafeteria. The University of Mississippi is reportedly using temperature kiosks to read students' temperatures on campus. Many public school districts are also using the technology. Fayette County Public Schools in Georgia recently purchased cameras made by Hikvision, a Chinese provider of facial recognition tools and surveillance equipment to estimate student temperatures as they walk in the door. VentureBeat reported the Topeka, Kansas Public School District has acquired screening systems that use integrated facial recognition features, and in New Hampshire, the Rio Rancho Public Schools Board of Education ordered dozens of GoSafe tablets that have built-in facial recognition components, according to VentureBeat. Students and privacy activists who spoke with Teen Vogue feel that increased surveillance, particularly the use of facial recognition, is a violation of students' civil liberties. This is something I think we're going to see more of in the future, especially throughout this pandemic, says Evan Greer, the deputy director of Fight for the Future, a nonprofit advocacy group focused on digital rights. This situation just underscores the need for policy and transparency, which most schools just do not have when it comes to surveillance. The University of Southern California also faced controversy this past spring for using facial recognition software on campus during COVID-19. When the pandemic broke, USC deactivated the fingerprint scanners in its residential halls, requiring students in some dorms to use ugh, facial recognition technology to gain access to their rooms. The university said its facial recognition system did not store data, but the product description of the device involved says its massive memory can store 1 million identity templates, 10 million event logs, and 20,000 image logs. Annenberg Media, a student-led media platform, reported at the time. Our residence halls use student ID cards that can be read by waving them near a card reader and fingerprint technology, the University of Southern California said in a statement to Teen Vogue. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we currently are using, we're currently only using the ID cards. Housing previously used biometric technology that gave students the option of using fingerprint technology or facial recognition, but that was discontinued in June. The facial recognition system previously used didn't store data or provide analytics. At Malloy College in New York, students living on campus are required to be scanned by a facial recognition temperature kiosk two times per day. When I first started using the temperature kiosks, it was freaky that it could recognize my face right away, and it made a lot of us feel kind of uncomfortable, says Bryn Winkleman, a sophomore at Malloy. I think that it would be more efficient to use a real thermometer if they are looking for effectiveness. It's also frustrating sometimes because it will mistake you for another student or even a stranger. So you have to retry it multiple times. Ugh. Malloy College installed the temperature kiosks on campus for the fall semester that began in September, Janine Biscari, Vice President of Student Affairs, tells Teen Vogue via email. We take privacy concerns very seriously, which is why the kiosk information is not shared with outside parties. The sole purpose of the temperature kiosk is to reduce the possibility of infection from the virus. We have not received any privacy inquiries from students, faculty, or staff. In fact, our community has embraced not only the kiosks, but also face coverings, social distancing, and hand sanitizing. According to Biscari, the college hasn't received any direct complaints from students about the facial recognition software. In response to increased surveillance on campuses, students and privacy advocates are fighting back and demanding that schools enact bans on facial recognition. 
on October 27th, over 20 privacy rights organizations, including Fight for the Future and the ACLU of Florida, sent an open letter to the University of Miami demanding the school meet students' demands, citing the university's lack of clarity on the issue. The student newspaper at New York's Hofstra University reported that the school disabled facial recognition and data collection mechanisms on temperature kiosks after the school said they were turned on erroneously. Many universities, such as Harvard and MIT, have banned facial recognition outright, an effort that has been bolstered by student organizing. People can't express themselves when their administration is breathing down their neck and tracking their political associations or what parties they go to, says Greer. Surveillance breeds conformity and obedience at a time when we need critical thinkers. It's a form of censorship and a way of making students feel afraid. It's frustrating that the school was trying to stop us from protesting, which is our right, says Fernandez, the University of Miami grad student. We're really not asking for much. Students just want to feel safe on campus. Wow. Very informative article. And again, this is from Teen Vogue. It came out on November 25th, 2020, and it was written by Mary Retta. You can find it at teenvogue.com, and we'll also share a link on our website, weeklyrev.org. Got another story we're going to share here, and then we'll take another music break. This is from uh, Silicon Valley Debug. Santa Clara County community celebrates historic move to stop the construction of a jail and embark on a community process to explore alternatives to the incarceration. San Jose, California. After years of being told the process to build a jail was too far along to be stopped, a coalition of Santa Clara County community organizers are celebrating the Board of Supervisors' unanimous vote today, and this came out a few days ago, uh, to stop going forward with the bidding process to construct a new jail and pivot to an inclusive and robust community process to explore a care-first, jail-last approach to mental health services and public safety with an aim to have a plan generated by September 2021. Silicon Valley debug organizer Jose Valley has been organizing with those incarcerated and their families for years and says today's vote represents a historic shift for Santa Clara County. This is a moment of pride for those of us who have been fighting against incarceration since Michael Tyree's murder and through three hunger strikes. It is an acknowledgement that building a jail is not a solution to the harm of incarceration, does not address our communities, and our county can, can and must do better, says Mr. Valley. The murder of Michael Tyree in 2015, who was beaten to death while in custody by three correctional officers, confirmed what those incarcerated had been saying for years that Santa Clara County jails were abusive, dangerous, and exposed those under its control to inhumane treatment. Michael Tyree's murder was followed by three hunger strikes over the next five years by those detained in the jails and their families on the outside. Joseph Bayar was detained in Maine Jail South, the jail that was eventually demolished and was initially planned to be where the new jail to be where a new jail was to be built. Mr. Vayar was one of the original hunger strikers, and upon hearing of the news to stop the building of the jail, says he was ecstatic, comparing the initial architectural designs of a new jail to the current efforts uh, to designing visions of freedom and community support. The stoppage of this jail where I, want, where I was once housed means a path to true justice and that the community can be architects of our future. Mr. Vayar's wife, Bene Vayar, who first started advocating for jail reform during the 2015 hunger strike, is now a leading voice for families directly impacted by incarceration as a community organizer for Silicon Valley Debug. After today's county board of supervisors vote, Mrs. Vayar says, 
my husband sat 24 hours in lockdown with no air, no sunlight in that jail. And now, because our community came together, we have shut down the construction of the new jail so other families won't have to endure the pain we did. The Board of Supervisors' vote was in response to overwhelming community calls for a care-first, jails-last approach, a phase used by Supervisor Cortez, who championed the effort to describe the value framework the county should follow while looking for alternatives to incarceration. A letter signed by a set of over 40 civil rights and community advocacy organizations was submitted to the board supporting a care-first, jail-last approach, which is attached to this link. And they ha it was echoed by dozens of public comments from those who have loved ones currently incarcerated and other community stakeholders. The community-driven effort was sizable enough to surmount a Santa Clara County executive report that instructed the county to still build the jail. Huh. The primary focus of the board while deliberating on stopping the building of a jail was to explore non-carceral responses to those with mental health needs. The pivot is reflective of how this decarceration journey began for many in a, in a public way, the killing of Michael Tyree. Michael's sister, Shannon Tyree, in response to the board vote said, having mental health support for people like Michael instead of a jail will change lives. We could have saved Michael. The families of the incarcerated, community organizations, and advocates look forward to charting out a care-first, jail-last path forward with Santa Clara County officials. So there, some positive news, folks organizing. And we'll provide a link to this article as well. It's uh, through a Google Doc, so I will share it on our weekly web page uh, later on today. Um, we're going to take a bit of a break here, play some more music, and we'll be back in a bit. Again, you're listening to Mutiny Radio, and we'll be back uh, in a bit. Someone won a smart idea Put a heart in first and a soul behind And I, I won't give in Cause I will try again
that's a nice music break that was wasted with goodbye alone justice and before that we heard a version of uh, diamonds and pearls by the marcin wazaluski trio and before that the heart is a muscle by gang of youths gonna play some more music uh, later on gonna get to at least one more article i am feeling a little bit like winding down already i know it's on the early end but just, yeah, there's a lot of information out there, and there's a lot to take in, um, a lot to process and understand, and to recognize one's role in all of it, and what we can do to create a better world for everybody. And I think the first step is just to acknowledge what's going on, the reality of the situation. So, this is an article that comes from Truthout, truthout.org, and this is written by William Rivers Pitt, and it was published on November 25th, 2020. Title, Nurse, this is an op-ed in the Environment and Health section. We are, nurse, we are screaming at the top of our lungs, and so few are listening. Uri Friedman of The Atlantic popped off a chewy little thought bomb a couple weeks back, surveying the national landscape under COVID. He argued that in the age of the pandemic, a new metric for national strength must be cultivated. The resilience of a population under duress. It is this metric, Friedman argued, not a nation's military prowess or economic muscle that matters the most right now. And by this metric, the United States has failed the COVID test thoroughly. Friedman's insight feels all the more relevant as we pass into the COVID crucible of mass Thanksgiving travel. While holiday travel this year has dropped several percentage points due to pandemic concerns, Many millions will still risk breathing the air on planes and trains in order to spend time with family and friends. They do so at a grimly consequential moment. COVID took almost 2,500 lives just yesterday and has been infecting nearly 200,000 people a day for the last week. It is, at present, worse than at any moment since the crisis began. Once Thanksgiving has come and gone, the pandemic will almost certainly spread its wings even wider due to the close association of the season. A long, dark winter promises to be even more bleak and unforgiving once the leftovers are gone. Quoting historian Sulman Khan, Friedman noted, The coronavirus didn't care how many aircraft carriers you had or how many Confucius Institutes you could stick up around the world, or what size your economy was. The virus asked simply how your least wealthy people would be treated in times of illness, how effectively you could trace the contacts of those it afflicted, how swiftly your medical system could cope with unexpected demands. The United States is proving time and time again its inability to succeed in relation to this metric. It is facile to scapegoat Thanksgiving travelers, a vivid example, though they may be, because this failure began with the first infection and has spread with it from one side of the nation to the other. When a large segment of a population is gulled by its leaders into thinking protective masks are an anti-freedom political statement to be shunned, even as the bodies pile up inside refrigeration trucks at the morgues, that it is a gross and dis dispiriting failure of popular resilience from top to bottom. Cup, uh, I'm really, oof, that's just a lot. I'm going to read the last part of the sentence. 
That is a gross and dispiriting failure of popular resilience from top to bottom. Trump offered a comfortable, self-affirming narrative to counteract the terrifying truths of COVID, and millions embraced it because it was easier and because it required no empathy or sense of civic duty. My freedoms was the rallying cry, the banner to which people flocked, doing something for everyone, made, was made to smell like socialism by the whole host of officials who absolutely knew better, but cozened their followers in trade for an illusory measure of political insulation from the pandemic's rolling consequences. Nowhere has the weight of our national failure of resilience landed heavier than in the medical facilities that are taking this new COVID spike straight in the teeth. The pandemic may have revealed our weakness as a country, weaknesses as a country, but it has also shined a bright spotlight on our strengths. Within the confines of a broken, profit-motivated healthcare system is an army of deeply devoted professionals who have thrown their bodies on the gears of this viral machine since it began. Almost a year into the battle, however, even their knees are beginning to buckle. And the author spoke to two working nurses this week, one on the East Coast and one on the West. Kathleen Logan, a nurse practitioner in acute inpatient and primary care, works in Massachusetts. T, who asked that their name be withheld out of concern for job security, is an RN at a hospital in the Pacific Northwest. I don't understand why they won't listen to us, lamented T, regarding the mobs of travel holiday travelers. We are screaming at the tops of our lungs and so few are listening. We won't have a well-functioning healthcare system in the best of times. Oh, we don't have a well-functioning healthcare system in the best of times. I wonder what it will look like in three to four weeks. I'm getting scared again, just like the worst part of the first surge, said Logan. We are reusing sanitized N95 masks, which is, a dis which is just disgusting. It's been documented that the integrity of the mask is depleted with each sanitation, so I don't participate in it. I leave it in the UV light and spray it down with disinfectant. I asked T, again, this is the author of the article, and Logan what their worst experience of the pandemic has been. For Logan, the worst part has been getting left to sink or swim by the president. We know this current president, uh, this current administration hates us, she said, speaking on behalf of her fellow medical professionals. He will mass produce ventilators for his voters, but not PPE for his health care providers. Because we are not his. He has abandoned us. There is no culture of compliance and teamwork. T was blunt. Nope, can't revisit that. T and Logan, along with their colleagues, are holding themselves and the country's COVID response together with bungee cords and use PPE masks. To them, thoughts and prayers is as effectively helpful as injecting bleach. They have been through so much already, established their genuine heroism many times over, and shown what national resilience truly looks like. Now, as they and the rest of us face the long midnight of a pandemic winter, I have a humble idea. When I was a kid, wearing armbands to support certain causes was an ever-present thing. Hot on the heels of the 1965 Supreme Court decision in Tinker v. Des Moines Independent Community School District, which allowed students to wear black armbands in protests of the war in Vietnam, these items became commonplace. I recall wearing armbands in support uh, to support the end of apartheid in South Africa against the first invasion of Iraq and in support of justice for Rodney King after the videotape of police beating him made national news. 
In the intervening years, the armband has often been pushed aside by the now ubiquitous rubber cause bracelets that are simultaneously far more fashionable and far less visible. Visibility is the key. On September 11th, there are American flags absolutely everywhere reminding us of how many had died, and also giving momentum to the hyper-nationalistic and xenophobic response marshaled in the wake of the attack. National tragedies like the Oklahoma City bombing provoke the lowering of those flags, another visible reminder that we have been visited by trouble and sorrow. For COVID, nothing, deliberately. Masks are the flag we fly now, right over our faces when we choose to wear them, perhaps with a pithy little message on them. No flags lowered, no recognition of our collective national horror as we grind toward 300,000 dead. In such a milieu, people can and do become numb to the situation, and that numbness can lead to lethargy and an abandonment of the caution we all owe to each other if we are to endure this. More to the point, we owe it to the medical professionals, to the last faces some of us will see if we ourselves become infected. They are the definite, excuse me, they are the definitive avatar of our national strength, which remains that our strength, which, re which remains that strength, and I think it is time every one of us did one small thing in recognition of that truth. An armband is simple, entirely visible way to do this. I propose a plain black band old school. When asked what it was meant for, we can reply, for the medical professionals, or simply for the dead. The black band can also signal our disgust with the straightforward fact that none of this had to happen. The query inspired by the band itself is the candle we wish to light. Those who still cleave to the fictions of the incredibly fading president may try to co-opt the concept as they did with, I can't even say it, the ugh, quote-unquote, blue lives matter, ugh, I'm going to barf when I say that, in response to black lives matter. But that shouldn't stop us. The more armbands there are out in the streets, the more people will be compelled to contemplate the present circumstances, to not shun them for the comfort, to not shun them for the comfort of that numbed denial. If you wish to sow thanks, it's one clear way to do so all year round. Our national resilience has been proved wanting. Perhaps in this small show of solidarity, we might alter that melancholy trajectory. At minimum, we will recognize the strength and sacrifice of those who have been in the throat of this thing for us all from the beginning, and with hope will be there until the end. So this is written by William Rivers Pitt for Truthout. You can find more information at truthout.org, and I'll share this article on our page, weeklyrev.org. I feel like I've tapped out a bit here, uh, so we'll be playing some music from the rest of the show, the next 20 minutes or so. Again, you can find more information at weeklyrev.org. We also have a Patreon that's up. I volunteer my time to do this show, pay for the studio space as well as the website. So please, please, if you're able to donate, that would be greatly appreciated, anywhere from a dollar a month and up. We have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash weeklyrev. You can also find a link at weeklyrev.org. Also, please uh, help keep Mutiny Radio afloat. That's where I come in to record this show and broadcast from. If you're interested in doing a show here of your own, there are slots available. Please contact Pam, who's the station director. Go to mutinyradio.fm for more information. And I believe that's about it. I know it's not it, but this is, again, just a drop in the bucket of what's happening in the world, or at least what's what I've come across in the past week or so. It's a lot. There's always a lot going on, so also wanting to share music as a means to remind that there's art out there, and art's beautiful, and uh, it's a way of recognizing the beauty in the world. 
So I'll also be providing a link to the Spotify playlists of the music we've been sharing on the show. All right. Uh, here's some Sam Cooke, and we'll be back uh, next week. Thanks so much for tuning in. You can also follow me on Twitter at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. I share a lot of news stories that I will end up reading on the show. Uh, have a great week, everyone, and we'll be back uh, soon. Oh. sad mood tonight oh i'm in a sad mood i'm in a sad mood tonight oh my baby done gone away and left me my baby done gone yeah my baby done gone away and left me my baby done gone I don't know why she left me I don't know where she's gone but all I know is I'll never be happy until my baby comes back home yeah because I'm in a sad mood tonight Oh, my baby done gone away and left me. My baby done gone. Oh, I don't know why she left me. But this one thing I know. I know that if my baby tells me that she'll come back home, I'll never, never do it no more, yeah, because I'm in a sad mood tonight oh i'm in a sad mood i'm in a sad mood tonight oh my baby done gone away and left me my baby done gone yeah my baby done gone away and left me my baby Done gone. I'm in a sad mood tonight. Oh, I'm in a sad mood tonight. She got me in a sad mood tonight. And with her gone, I'm in a sad mood tonight.